Hello everyone, I'm Nayaswami Asha, and we're starting our webinars for the year 2014. I know it's already well into March, but I spent the first two months of this year traveling and teaching in India. So I'm just starting this cycle now. The uh, whole cycle of classes that we're going to be doing for this whole year is going to be based on this book, The Essence of Self-Realization, The Wisdom of Paramhansa Yogananda. As I was looking at this book just now, I realized that this has probably been reissued and it probably looks very different. This was one of the earlier versions of it. So if you have the same book, just going to see sort of what the printing on this is. This is first printing 1990. So I suspect by now it's been redone. Is it, what, 24 years? My, how time flies. But in any case, the contents are just the same. I don't think it's been re-edited, so it's really the contents that we're dealing with. Um, I was looking for a series that I wanted to do that we could sort of build on over time. And I've also been, uh, I find it very gratifying to work with the books that Swamiji has written. Um, there's so many different ways to approach the spiritual path. And Swamiji's uh, attunement, of course, with these teachings is so profound and reading and rereading his books and really in a very selfish way on my side, having to tune into the enough to share them with others, uh, it really helps me and I, I think it helps all of us because it's not merely the words that are written there or the ideas that are shared, but, but Swamiji puts his vibrations into everything he's written and when Swamiji is writing Master's words, uh, it just seems like a very rich um, it seems like a very rich place to go and to learn and um, to draw understanding from. I actually started doing uh, study courses on Swamiji's books maybe even as long as 20 years ago. And I started because I was reading Hindu Way of Awakening, which is a really great book. And I was having to concentrate very hard in order to understand that book. And it occurred to me that probably everybody did. And maybe we could work together and draw more from those books than uh, we were able to just on our own. And uh, I, I started then, and I've not looked back. I've been at it for now for quite a long time in the classes that I give here in the colony where I live in Palo Alto. And now I'm seemingly starting the same thing with the webinars. Um, I, I feel it's a very valid use of time, and I hope that you end up feeling the same way. We're just going to go chapter by chapter through this book, devoting one, one a webinar to each chapter. The chapters, of course, are of different lengths, so it's going to be a little bit varied in that respect. I have to say that I did a whole series on Swami's commentary on the Gita, and I, I had a predetermined pace. In that book, I divided the book into 10-page segments and did 52 classes. You can find that on my website, swamiasha.org. After I did that, I decided after that that I wasn't going to set a pace anymore because uh, 10 pages, especially in that book, is so much. Uh, and oftentimes I just have to skip over too many important facts. Well, here I'm doing it again. So we'll see whether I regret it or not. But he, these are subject areas, and I think we can grasp the essence of Master's point on each issue. Just to give you a little background on this book, which some of you may know, some of you may not, when Swamiji came to Master, and he was a, a lad of 22, and Master was in the last, as it turned out, three and a half years of his life, very early he told Swamiji to write down the things that Master said. Um, recording devices were not as common, although Master was recorded and filmed uh, more than we have access to, uh, but not all the time. But he told Swamiji to write down the things that he said. And in fact, Master said sometimes, I don't often speak from this level of impersonal wisdom, and I would like you to capture it. And so Swamiji, as a young disciple, very dutifully took notes. And uh, those notebooks, as he described, were his most valuable possession, really for the rest of his life until 2003, at which point he, he felt, when he wrote Conversations with Master, that he had finally published everything that was publishable that was in those notebooks. And that, that was a real watershed for his um, commission from Master. Um, this was the second book he wrote from those notebooks. The first was The Path. Of 
course, Swamiji published in the very early years, actually, when he was raising money for Ananda. He had something he called the Dollar a Month Club. Imagine how inflation has affected things. One dollar, literally. You paid one dollar a month, and you got this newsletter from him, and it included sayings of Yogananda, unpublished for the most part. He drew from his notebooks and from his memories. And there was this little thing you got, the Dollar a Month Club, and had news of the building of Ananda and sayings of Master. Heavens, we should uncover those. They're in an archive somewhere. Uh, there's probably a lot of treasure in there. And then in 1976, in the, through the uh, beginning, through the 70s, and f finally finishing in 77, 78, Swamiji wrote The Path, which he recently rewrote, or again rewrote some years later, called The New Path. And it was his life with Yogananda, and he told stories, a lot of stories, from the notebooks of experiences that he'd had. And then in 1990, which was now, that was quite a long time later, wasn't it? Um, it was not that he never referred to those books, but he didn't publish anything um, really from those notebooks. He decided that he would make this collection, The Essence of Self-Realization. It was notable also because around the time this book was published, in fact, when this book was published at the same time, was when Self-Realization Fellowship decided enough already and tried to take legal action to prevent Swamiji and Ananda from continuing on this path of representing Yogananda and being his mouthpiece into the world. They tried through their lawsuit, which went on for 12 years from that point, um, to assert a legal monopoly on the teachings of Yogananda. And Swami's decision to publish this book and his decision to call it, to use the word self-realization in the title of the book, was a very deliberate decision on his part. He had spent the year, all the years from 1962 till 1990, that's almost, what, almost 30 years, trying to um, make a reconciliation with SRF. Um, it, not from their point of view, but from his point of view. That's what he was doing. But the one thing he wasn't willing to do was, as he put it, was nothing in terms of serving his guru. And he tried to accommodate their preferences in the way he presented Ananda and the way he carried on his work. In 1990, he decided that that tactic had not brought harmony, so he was going to try something else. And that was simply to stand up for what he knew to be true. And the word self-realization is what Yogananda had called his own work, self-realization fellowship. That's the term he chose. And Swamiji decided that as disciples of Master, it behooved us to follow our guru's uh, example. And if self-realization was what he called his work, then we ought to use that, that name also. That became the uh, excuse SRF used to file a lawsuit because shortly after Swamiji became engaged in this book, he changed the name of Ananda to Ananda Church of Self-Realization. He didn't do it. We did it. But he suggested that we do it. And that was the catalyst for the lawsuit, although the lawsuit was vastly more than just the word self-realization. The end of that, just to finish that little bit of the story, was that the court declared that the words self-realization could not be owned by anyone because they were descriptive. They merely described the product. The product was self-realization. And you can't uh, copyright something if it's just simply what you're doing. You can't copyright the word uh, grapefruit because everybody who sells grapefruits gets to describe their grapefruits. So the court ruled that self-realization was a generic term that described what we were doing. And the, the story of the litigation is a long story, um, but it's somehow it's intimately tied to this book because uh, there was an inspiration in Swamiji that he really needed to get on with what he was born to do. And what he was born to do was to represent Yogananda's teachings of self-realization. So he sat down and decided to publish sayings of Yogananda, unpublished sayings of Yogananda for the most part. And they were in his notebooks. But Swamiji also felt, he, he chose, that instead of a random collection, which is what uh, the much later book, which was published in 2003, um, Conversations with Yogananda, um, that was a more or less random collection because that was essentially everything that was left. 
But when he published The Essence of Self-Realization, he decided he would follow a structure. And um, if you, you know, look at the book, each of the chapters has a theme. What we're going to talk about tonight in a few minutes is the folly of materialism. The second chapter is the true purpose of life. Then it goes the dream nature of the universe, the soul and God, and so on for 20-some chapters. And each one is a grouping of, of unrelated comments by Master, meaning they're not, they weren't a sequence delivered all at once, that sort of fill out his point of view on that subject. Well, once Swamiji committed to this way of organizing the book, it was, of course, necessary that, there, that each chapter be substantial. And so Swamiji found that in some cases he didn't have quite enough material um, in the notebooks. And so he had to pray to Master to help him remember relevant sayings so that he could, he could have what he needed. And at the time Swamiji was working on this, um, the exact details of why I don't really know exactly, but he had moved temporarily out of Crystal Hermitage they were doing some kind of construction there. I don't know exactly what stage of renovation was going on, but some kind of construction was going on in his house, Crystal Hermitage, and he moved over to the guest house for Crystal Hermitage, which is a smaller, a smaller cottage, which is maybe, I don't know, 200 yards away. Um, it's, it's more isolated, especially then it was more isolated. Now there's been a little building around it. It was more isolated it was it was much cozier. It was just a, a smaller, more contained space, and that's where he, that's where he wrote this book. And another factor that was so interesting about his writing the book and writing it there was that by this point, Swamiji regularly worked with a computer, and of course, before then, he always worked with a typewriter or an electric typewriter, and then he changed over to a word processor as soon as that was possible, which is was a very early adopter, so he started in the late 70s. He had a word processing computer just practically as soon as they were available. And that was how he always worked, because the um, word processing system, as he put it, removed the, the material obstacle to creativity, because uh, you can get your creative thoughts out so quickly, and you can uh, adjust them so quickly on that system that there, there's no, it's much easier to keep your energy high and connected because the material plane doesn't weigh you down so much. When people had to write longhand with pens, as Swamiji said, they wrote in a very different style. And it wasn't always that easy to keep your inspiration, keep your energy level high all the way through that a laborious process. However, when he was doing this book, he said he found that working on the computer interfered with the, the sensitivity of his attunement to Master, especially when he was trying to bring, bring, uh, bring back to conscious recollection situations and conversations with Master that he needed for this book. And so he did it by hand. Um, he didn't write the whole book by hand, but he, he attuned himself to Master and wrote down Master's sayings uh, with a pen. And uh, he said he, he became so um, connected to that inspiration from Master that he, he, he laughingly said he was just conversing with him. He could, he could put himself back into the, uh, into the situations where he would be just sitting with Master. He could hear Master's voice. He could remember every word he said. And he, he would pray to Master, and he would feel Master reminding him of moments in time. And then he would be able to remember them. And sometimes he said, uh, if he couldn't quite keep up, he would say, Master, could you please speak a little more slowly? And he said Master would respond to him. So there was uh, something really extraordinary that happened in the writing of this book. And it was after he finished writing it, Swamiji articulated this thought. He said, my thoughts are so united with Master that I, I can no longer tell what is his thought and what is mine. You know, I can't tell where I, where I end and he begins. That's really quite a statement for a disciple to make. I find it interesting also, recently when I was in India, somebody asked me a question related to this. And 
it occurred to me for the first time, naively, I should have thought of it a long time ago, that, of course, the writing of this book was the catalyst for those 12 years of litigation in which Swamiji had to stand strong against the determined effort of his guru bhais um, to disqualify him and discredit him as a disciple of their guru. And these are the very people you know, with whom he shared those extraordinary years of direct association with Yogananda. Those were his peers. Um, and they, with great determination for quite a long time, really tried to pull the rug out from under him, you know, discredit him publicly and dishearten him personally. And so Swami writing this book and coming into that very close attunement with Master, um, I think Swamiji knew what was coming because he, he knew what the... He knew it was time to stand up, and he knew what the consequences would be. I mean, he, I don't know whether he knew exactly, but he knew what the consequences would be in general enough terms that he did not go into it naively. Um, but it's interesting to me that his consciousness united with Master so strongly just before he had to endure um, that great period of testing. We, we never know what's going on. I mean, we just we surrender, and we follow step by step. But I found with Swamiji, what I found with Swamiji over the years, was he, he, had, he had learned to trust his intuition. And he had great courage to follow his heart. And it wasn't, it, when things would unfold in a certain way, it wasn't really that he knew they would unfold that way. I mean, he didn't necessarily stand at the beginning and see all the play of events. Um, but he, he would follow the intuition where it would take him. And allow it to unfold however it was going to be unfold. What I mean to say is he didn't calculate. He just, if he felt guided to do this, and he might see the consequences of this, if, I, if, if we change our name from Ananda to Ananda Church of Self-Realization, that, that will provoke a response. And we might be able to anticipate what that response would be. But if the intuition says to do it, we don't go down the road. We just have the courage of this moment which will lead to the courage of the next moment, which will lead to the courage of the next moment. So when this book, The Essence of Self-Realization, came out also, there was, there was, no, um, there was no other book like it. Um, SRF had published very little of Master, the essays, yes, but not very much. We didn't have the Wisdom of Yogananda series, which we've published since, because of the uh, litigation. Um, all of this material was freed up from monopolistic control and everything that you see. The, the first edition of the Autobiography of a Yogi, the Wisdom of Yogananda series, the plethora of, of publications and organizations and photographs and recordings, all because of that litigation. An attempt to create a monopoly actually completely busted open the monopoly, which this is God's own way. So, I wanted to give that background to the story so um, you'll know what we're working with. So now, let's just work with chapter one, which I love the way Swami calls it. He calls it the folly of materialism. You know, it's very interesting when you're completely persuaded of the spiritual path. Let me, let me put it a little differently. When you're persuaded of it, no, that's the right word. And also when you have realized certain aspects of it. And I don't want to make more of that um, if I'm going to speak of myself. I don't want to make more of that than should be made of that thought. But when certain understandings have come to you that are based not just on uh, obedience or dogma, but are just really and genuinely your own actual experiences, you really can't you can't see things differently than that. Um, I've been a vegetarian. I'll use a very simple example. I've been a vegetarian for a very long time. I was about 18, 19, when I really first um, woke up to the fact of being a vegetarian. It wasn't a very hard shift for me, um, although my sister tells me that I was quite the carnivore when I was younger, but I no longer remember it. 
uh, except in little flashes. But when I decided to be a vegetarian, it was very natural to me, and I just took it on. One of the last bits of meat I had was a hamburger that I ate, and all that night, I dreamt the whole hamburger, not just the, the meat patty, but the whole hamburger, the bun, the pickles, the tomato, the lettuce, and in like a cartoon, it moved through my veins, making a big lump on my body. And like all night, I dreamt of that hamburger just traveling intact all through my system. It, it was enough to really have you never have another one. That, as I recall, was pretty much the last meat I ate or very close to it. But having accepted vegetarianism and then having lived without um, eating dead animals for a really, really long time. Just the, the thought or the sight of, of flesh from dead animals, which nobody likes to say, but that's what it is. It's dead animals. Uh, it's just un, un, unbearable to me, the thought that I might actually put that into my mouth and eat it. You know, I, I'm not fanatical, but it's just very, very unpleasant. Just like, you know, you have something that's putrid, it, you leave rice in the refrigerator too long, and you open it and it's very stinky. You're, you're just not inclined to eat it. It just doesn't appeal to you. And I feel that way about meat, and I, I joke that when I'm in a restaurant sometimes and I see people ordering, especially something that looks very meat-like, that's not hidden, a big steak or one of those little chickens or something that really still looks like a chicken when they bring it to the plate, I, I get really embarrassed for the people who are eating it. And I get really embarrassed if their children are watching. And then I have to remind myself, you know, this is a very natural act for many people. Their perception of what is good and what is true simply includes this. And I, I'm not judging them. This is different than judging them. I'm talking about how completely different your perceptions can become. So much so that it, it's really impossible to have another set of perceptions. And that's what Swami is using when he ta calls this um, chapter the folly of materialism. And he's, he is talking, and Master talks here, about um, luxury and the pursuit of money for its own sake and having, you know, just wanting more and more. He's not talking about living comfortably. Uh, meaning with with plenty to eat in a shelter that that uh, supports your way of life or shelters your family or whatever you might need. He's talking about imagining that our happiness is the result of the material things that we have. And the word that Swami uses is the folly of that thought. Folly is a very interesting word. I mean, folly is just like well, foolish is the origin point of that, probably. That it's just, it's not in your best interest. And it's transparently not going to take us anywhere. So, Master starts out, the first one that Swami uses here, is he says that what is simply is. It can't be voted into existence, is how he puts it. And I was reflecting on that way of beginning. Because a lot of times when a person first starts out on the spiritual path, you find yourself quite in the minority. And the point of view that you've taken up is uh, you, you can't go out on the street and get a lot of people to agree with you. Your own husband, your wife, your children, your parents, they may really think that you're the one who really doesn't have your head on straight anymore. Um, recently I, was, uh, I did an audio book of Swami's last book, which is called Love Perfected life divine. And without going into the whole story, this the heroine of the book has to go through very arduous spiritual testing in order to um, achieve the goal, in, in order to achieve perfect love. And as part of that test, there's the challenge of other people's um, disdain and other people's complete disbelief in what's of value to her. And I used to hear Swamiji make very broad and sweeping statements about other people's points of view. And 
when I was in my 20s, I, I used to, to be, to be sincere with you, I used to find it a little off-putting. He would make these, what I would consider to be sweeping generalizations that were not very flattering about the, the mass of humanity. Um, but the older I've gotten and the more experience I've had, I really do begin to appreciate. He'd just seen a lot more of the world than I had. I was living in this tiny little bubble of uh, the Ananda community, and I was I thought that our point of view was common. But living as I have been now for 25 years in Silicon Valley, which is certainly a very materialistic place, no matter how you slice it, and being in lots of different crowds of people, you can feel vibrations. And I realize how very few people have, have uplifted thoughts. They might be kind people, they might be good people, trying to live honorable lives, creative, many, many fine qualities among the general population here. It's really a wonderful place to live. I want to be very positive about that. But very few people think of God. And very few people, well, think deeply about the consequences of what they're doing. And this is what Master begins, just by wanting us to understand. It, it, it's just a truth. It doesn't really matter if you're the only person who knows it. It either is or it isn't. And everybody else can have one opinion. But if this is true, it's just true. And so then he goes on to the question about, he, he, he makes this contrast between the material scientist and the spiritual scientist, which is really a fun way to do it. And he talks about how the material scientists devote themselves, working very hard, to um, creating harmonious, beneficial, and comfortable things in the material plane. I mean, the world we live in now is just, it's just amazing in so many ways in terms of the energy that we have brought to a focus to create um, tools and opportunities for us to enjoy this world. We're very, I, I mean... Uh, we have air conditioning, we have heating, we have waterproof buildings. Uh, I was doing uh, laundry today. We have washing machines. We have dryers. I mean, we just have so many things that we can do. Dishwashers, uh, stoves that just light up without us having to go out into the woods and chop the wood and bring it all in and make the fire. Uh, we can just turn the knob and there it is. And we don't even have to haul the gas cylinders. It's all, I mean, there's just so many ways. I get into my wonderful little car. It's air-conditioned inside. I can listen to Swamiji talk to me the whole time I'm in the car. I can talk on the telephone to all my friends. And this is all the result of what uh, Master calls material scientists. And I live here in Silicon Valley, so I know a lot about material scientists. He said, now the spiritual scientist, instead of uh, exploring the power of the material world, explores the power of the inner world the power of the mind, the power of the soul. And he says when the spiritual scientist succeeds, he gains immunity from all inconvenience. Isn't that a lovely way to put it? From all outer inconvenience. He says so in the end, actually, which is more valuable? To be able to manipulate the external world for your convenience and comfort or to be able to control your inner reactions so that it makes no difference. I mean, which is the greater state of freedom? Because so much of what we call comfort is dependent on, well, forces beyond our control. So Master just asks us, he's trying to reason with us. He said, one is good, but which is better? He's not saying that we should live without one because we all enjoy the benefits, we can respect it. But if we're going to also ask ourselves, what's most valuable for me? Do I want to devote myself to making sure that my external world is lined up just the way I want it? Or do I want to develop that freedom that uh, makes me immune to outer inconvenience? So I mean, uh, Master even uses that word, inconvenience. I mean, it's not even comfort, just mere inconvenience, just not to be inconvenienced. Just think about it for a minute, how hot-headed people or people with no patience or people with a very um, low tolerance for stress and anxiety, just how easily their inner peace can be upset. Having to wait in line too long, too many red lights, not being able to buy something that was supposed to be in the store when they went, getting the wrong product in the mail, having someone speak unkindly to you, how easily we can be upset. You know, what is the better, which science is better to develop? 
the folly of materialism, the folly of looking to the material world to make us comfortable and happy. Um, So uh, Master then goes on to just talk about spending all our time building castles on the sand. That's not his words, but that's what it is. The acquiring and developing things that don't last. You know, again, I come back, I'll come back to vegetarianism as the example again. It's, these are not points of view that you can persuade someone of. That's a very important aspect of self-realization. We make no effort to convert. Um, If someone is interested, we'll converse. But we make no effort to convert because if someone doesn't recognize these realities from their own experience, there's no way you can persuade someone. If someone is eating a steak or a little boiled chicken or whatever they're eating and they're getting genuine enjoyment out of it and it doesn't resonate with them, that this is not really either healthy or spiritually healthy for me, it, no amount of someone else waving their finger at them is going to tell them. It has to be something that you yourself um, simply perceive and feel. So um, this thought of a bigger lifespan, a bigger reality than today and tomorrow, uh, a, a bigger responsibility even than just this one life, I recently gave a seminar, again, in India it was. You can find all these on, if you go to my website, Swami Asha, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it was called Finding Happiness. And a lot of that, uh, that was, it was the one I gave in Bangalore, in case you're looking for it. I gave the same one in Gorgaon, but not in the same way. Um, A lot of that seminar was about time and eternity and what we identify with, whether we identify with the bigger cycle of time or the little cycle of time. And Afterwards, someone very thoughtfully said to me, she said, I've been thinking about the trip I'm going to take and what I have to put in my suitcases and her grown children and what they wanted from her and what she needed to do for this and that, she said. And she's a serious devotee, but somehow this... Uh, this conversation struck a nerve in her. She said, I've been giving very little thought to what the whole purpose of this incarnation is, and even less to where I'll be when this incarnation ends. She said, it's really necessary to lift our minds above the moment. And so that's what Master says to us, spending all our time on things that don't last. It's not that we don't take care of business. You see, this is all about which string you pick the marionette up from. We have to take care of our children. If you're going to take a trip, you have to know what you're going to put in your suitcase. We have, we have to do all these little duties, but it's a question of whether or not our consciousness stops there, or whether even those um, mundane things that we take care of are done from a, a higher perspective. You know, where, where do we concentrate ourselves? I use the example often of a tree with its branches reaching out and all the little leaves on the tree. The, the tree has to be responsible for every one of those leaves. I mean, it's his job to make those leaves. He can't just lose interest in them. If he loses interest in them, then the tree begins to uh, warp and doesn't flourish. So just like with us, we have to reach out in our lives all the way to the last little leaf. You know, I, I had to fold the laundry. I have to go grocery shopping and make food and just a thousand details. I'm just, sometimes I'm just overwhelmed by how many details there are in life. And they still just, each one has to be taken care of. Oh, the car is out of gas, needs to be washed, something has to be taken to the dry cleaner, on and on and on. So, but we either, either that is the lid, either that's the definition of our life, or we're living in the realities that really matter. We're being the spiritual scientist, learning to control and direct the thought process toward a greater reality, and then in that consciousness, we take care of all the little leaves of our lives, 
Or we are grasping at those little leaves, thinking that if I can just get them in order, and that's where the folly of materialism comes in. You know, sometimes the whole question of how much is enough. A friend of mine took early retirement from a company because he was invested with stock options, vested with stock options and so on, and ended up with enough money. And he, perhaps he coined it or else he just quoted it. I don't know what he called it, but he called himself an enough an heir. <laughs> he wasn't a millionaire, but he was an enough an heir. He just had enough. He had enough to be just fine. He ended up, in fact, uh, going back to work because he didn't have enough challenging and interesting to do, but he had enough money. And I, you think sometimes, like, how much is enough? How much do we really want? Master was fond of telling the story of a, a man who uh, cultivated like a half acre of land and was, it was enough for him to support himself, although barely, and someone wanted to help him by giving him more land to cultivate. And the man responded, he said, but if I had more land to cultivate, I wouldn't have enough time for singing. Meaning that this is enough. It doesn't have to be more. Part of our, um, well, part of our anxiety about having enough goes back to the question of where does security come from? Does security come from getting everything in the material world completely in line? Or does it come from knowing that I am living in harmony with the divine and therefore whatever comes to me will be God's will? I, I remember in this context there was a meeting that I didn't attend because I was in another city, but I heard about it later. That, you know, Ananda was started, was founded with Swami Kriyananda by a, a tribe, a karmic tribe of people that were mostly in their 20s. There were a few old oldies around, Swamiji himself being all of 45, but the majority of us were in our 20s. And of course, when you're 20, old age never comes. And as we've gone through the 40s and 50s, and now many of us in our 60s or even 70s, there was a meeting once about end of life and uh, retirement, or more likely being having to, having to be put out to pasture rather than choosing to be put out to pasture, just being beyond having outlived your usefulness <laughs> in any uh, way that was uh, financially remunerative. And it was just the question of, you know, how we can take care of ourselves. And a certain thought of, well, you know, Ananda owes us this or that. I'm not really going to go into that in depth, but one man uh, said at that meeting, he said, I gave my life to God. He said, and God guided me to Ananda. And I'm, I am giving my life in service to Ananda. But he said, Ananda doesn't owe me. He said, this is an agreement I made between myself and God and Guru. And if they choose to care for me in a comfortable way to the end of my life, he said, I will accept that with gratitude. And if I end up homeless and living under a bridge, he said, I've given my life to God. And I'm not depending on any other reality but that. It's a very courageous statement. And I pray with all my heart that all of us have the... Um, the inner fortitude um, to accept with equanimity whatever comes to us. I mean, one can argue all kinds of things from many other angles, and many of those points of view may be valid. You know, certainly Ananda is making every effort um, to be loyal to those who have been loyal to it. And interestingly, one of the last interviews that Swamiji gave uh, was a series of questions that Jyotish and Devi asked him uh, for a class on leadership that they were giving. And they asked Swamiji, you know, what would you like to see improved or different about Ananda? What, what, what do you think we need to concentrate on? He said to be sure that we take care of people to the end of their lives. Loyalty is very important. So it's not that that principle doesn't apply, but it's a question of what we're doing inwardly. You know, is this a relationship with God? Where do we feel our security comes from? And that's a question you have to ask yourself every day. You may have gold bouillon in the closet and money in the bank and a portfolio, or you may not. But where does our security come from? 
if it comes from our relationship with God and our certainty that he will provide us with just what we need. This is the opposite of the folly of materialism, and this is what Master talks about. But the other side of the folly of materialism is something that's, that Master also talks about here. And he uses the example of the clever owner getting his dog to pull a cart, the cart laden with things that the owner wanted, by putting on a stick a sausage that the dog was constantly trying to reach. And the dog wasn't smart enough to be able to tell that it was on a stick attached to his own head. And therefore, every time he moved his head forward, the sausage moved forward, and the distance between them never, never narrowed. And as a consequence, he was pulling that cart for his own, by chasing that which was unattainable. Now, the obvious reality here is Master talking to us, saying to us that very often we're always chasing that which is never really going to be ours. And he then goes on to speak, and Master was, was very, um, had an extremely practical turn of mind. He says we shouldn't think about spirituality as, as something other than what we ourselves can experience. His, his entire spiritual message in many ways, I was speaking just a few days ago, a class here in Palo Alto called The Path of Kriya Yoga. It's sort of fun because... Uh, the same titles repeat themselves in different cities in different years, and everything is an intuitive flow for where I am and what's happening. And giving that class in our own temple here was very different than giving it in Mumbai and Calcutta, where I also gave it in a completely, completely different setting. But trying to just tune in to what Master was really trying to do for us in this... Uh, mission of self-realization that he brought, and this path of Kriya Yoga. A very interesting thought occurred to me that the one principle that I have often fully understood or articulated many times is the path of self-realization is to really put spiritual responsibility in the hands of the individual. We've just come through Kali Yuga, which is the age of form, which is the age of matter, these huge cathedrals all over Europe, these big spiritual organizations, these huge wealthy uh, ent entities that are involved not only in spiritual life, but in politics and in banking and in business and you know, just extended from so many different, into so many different arenas. Not that the values of spirituality wouldn't be beneficial in all arenas of life, but this is organizations set up for spiritual purposes that end up carrying out all kinds of other enterprises for which they were not intended. One of the reasons Swami Kriyananda gave up the idea of Ananda incorporating as a California city, which is a project I work on, worked on back in 1981-82, is because he said it's really unwise for an organization constituted for spiritual purposes to suddenly find itself working in a completely other arena and uh, I, I, he wrote a letter about that at that time, which appears in my book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him. And I think the chapter is called Quick Change, but I'm not really entirely certain. And um, he, really, he really predicts a lot of the uh, downside of what's happened now that a lot of uh, fundamental type Christians have now gotten into politics. Just how confused everything becomes. Um, but in any case, what Master came to do was to extricate East and West from the institutional definition of religion, and in many ways the East is worse because, uh, as one of my Hindu friends said, and I can quote him because he's the one who said it, he said, Hinduism is the only religion in the world that you have to pay somebody else to practice for you. I mean, there's a whole a professional caste of priests who are adept at these complicated ceremonies, often in Sanskrit, that have to be carried out in order to fulfill, to make things happen or to fulfill certain religious duties. And I mean, it's not, it's not an inappropriate thing that they're doing. It's just the way that things have been constituted. You hire a, a pujari, a priest to carry out this ritual for you so that you can conform with 
what your spiritual beliefs tell you you have to do. But it's, it's also removed from your own actual consciousness. And spirituality, self-realization is about everyone's desire for happiness and their desire to avoid suffering. And we might be paying a priest in the hope that by some alchemy or of magic, you know, he'll, he'll align the forces so that the material world will cooperate with us. It's, with all due respect, it's another kind of materialism a great deal of the time. I, I sat on the airplane coming back, and it was in the middle of India, it doesn't matter, flying from Calcutta to Mumbai, I think. This woman, who is an Indian woman, but has lived in America for the last 35 years, she comes back to India periodically to see her relatives, but she especially timed her visit because her son is, has some important exams. Maybe it's college entrance, maybe it's graduating from college, but some important milestone in the career of her son. And she made a, a point of going to all the temples and saying prayers for his success in all of those temples. Well, a mother's loving heart, but she's trying to use the divine principles in order to align the material world so that everything will come out for him. She wasn't praying that he'd be closer to God or more in tune with God's will. She was praying that he pass his exams and get a good job. Well, we're not going to pray that he not pass his exams and not get a good job, but the folly of materialism. Why don't we become spiritual scientists and master our own hearts and minds so that we are immune to all inconveniences? And then, of course, try to help our son to succeed. Why not? But you see, are we doing it with the leaf as the value? Or are we doing it as our duty from the, from the core of the tree, reaching out to encompass everything that our lives encompass? So what Master brought for us is to put the responsibility for our spiritual life right in our own hands. Now, of course, part of that, an understanding of how to take responsibility also involves our making a relationship with the Guru and our making a relationship with God, with the greater reality of which we are a part. So putting it into our own hands is not putting it into our, the hands of egoic separateness, but it's understanding that we need to be spiritual scientists and we need to gain mastery over our thoughts and over our feelings in order to move through this world um, with the proper spirit. And what I was starting to say about that seminar that I was recently giving, I realized that Master brought personal responsibility all the way down to the breath. Isn't that interesting when you think about it? I mean, what is more fundamental to our incarnation? When the baby is born, you wait until that baby breathes. Because until the baby breathes, the perfect body can still be lifeless. The baby breathes. And when you're sitting with someone who's dying, you listen to their breath. And you, you, you can tell when they're getting ready, um, usually when they're getting ready to exit. I've sat with a handful of people. I'm no expert on this. But you can tell because there's a, a huge shift in the quality of their breathing. I've mentioned this in other contexts. For a while, when a person is toward the end of their life, they struggle to breathe in. They, 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 they want to keep their body going, so they keep trying to take in oxygen. But there's a certain point, which is really usually very close to the end, where the rhythm of the breath shifts and the emphasis is on the exhalation. It's like they're trying to just get rid of the breath. And the last, the death rattle, the last, is always an exhalation. Just letting the energy go into that final exhalation. So Kriya, the, the, the practice of Kriya, well, the teaching of Kriya begins with the Hongsa technique, which is uh, watching the breath. And when you get all the way to the Kriya technique itself, it is folk, it, it, it's about the breath. The breath is the, the means by which we access the inner worlds and by which we transform the inner worlds. I mean, what could be more unique, private, and individual than the breath? And more practical, because it's always there. I mean, you can be, 
You could be imprisoned in the darkest dungeon, completely alone, and you would still have your breath. And if the breath is your means of connecting with the infinite, and if the breath is the means by which you gain mastery over heart and mind and gain access to bliss, and Kriya is all about the breath, isn't it fascinating? I mean, just utterly fascinating. And um, Master ends this chapter on the folly of materialism just by talking about the fact that we, when once we lose connection with our inner divine reality, I mean, that's what sends us on this mad quest for material things to fill that space. But we're, what we're really looking for is, our, is to restore that divine connection. And no matter what we acquire of a material nature, which includes you know, other people and everything, it, it will never uh, satisfy the, the real need, because the real need is a separation from our own divinity. Our, uh, our hearts were made for Thee alone, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. That's what a great, how a great saint put it. It's so sweet, really. And that's, um, I was saying a moment ago, we, you don't convert. You just help people to understand and to become spiritual scientists, to watch their own experience until the experiment proves itself, till the evidence proves itself. And the inspiration comes from inside um, to want to pursue a higher reality. Now, I have a couple of questions, which I'll answer now. The first one is, does the incarnation slash existence really end? That would be the body which ends, correct? But our real self may never end, as it was never created and is always present. Can you confirm that? The question is, uh, does, does you know, the, end of, the end of an incarnation is only the end of a body, because that which lasts it merely inhabits the body. That's the most important, the simplest, the, the simplest and the most important truth to keep in your mind at all times is just this simple realization that uh, we wear the body and the body never defines us. Ego, Master said, is the individual spirit. We use the word soul in English, but a better word is the Sanskrit word jiva, which means that spark of divinity that individual spark of divinity, the jiva, the individuality that is us, that is each one of us, um, is, is always the same, and it moves in and out of physical bodies. Um, Swamiji, I remember in a particular context, it was after my mother died, actually, and we were talking, I mean, right after my mother died, I was with him when I heard that my mother had died. She'd been ill for quite some time. Her death um, came without much prelude, but to say it was unexpected was not exactly true. And it was a relief also because she was struggling and in the last few weeks before she died her illness had taken a, a more unpleasant turn. So it was, it, was, uh, it was the grace of God that she exited her body when she did. But Swamiji, I remember, he just so, so emphatically, he said, nothing happens when you die. Nothing happens. Because our consciousness is who we are, and our consciousness just simply continues. We take off the costume that we've been wearing for a very long time and therefore become quite identified with, but what goes with us is the vibration of who we are. And yes, the, the context is different. The astral world is freer and more beautiful, and if you are a good person and have been spiritually minded, there's a great deal of joy in, in completing the task and being freed from the heaviness of the material body. A friend of mine, his name is Evan Strong, um, he's, I, well, he's, he's more than an acquaintance, but I, I don't know him personally that well, but I know his family. He, at the age of, he was a very good athlete at the age of 17. Um, he was in a motorcycle accident and he lost um, the lower part of his leg. And just recently when this is being recorded, he's become uh, an athlete for what they, uh, he, uh, the Paralympics, they call it. I'm not quite sure where the words come from. But uh, with an artificial limb, he took up snowboarding and he won the gold medal for America in the recent event. 
And he's a very aware young man, very impressive young man. And he talked about um, when he was hit by the car and he was lying on the highway. He was on his motorcycle a block from home and an inebriated person, I believe, or at least a careless person, crossed the center line and just shaved off his lower leg, basically. And he was just lying on the highway, just gushing blood, fully aware of the fact that this was really serious. And he was an athlete already, and uh, like a, a skateboarder, and you know that was his profession, even. And he knew that his, you know, big serious thing had happened to his means, his fundamental way of being. And uh, but he was he was also very conscious, and his family had trained him from a young age. And he, he thought, you know, do I die? Or do I go on? And then he came to the thought, well, the costume is torn. The costume is torn, but otherwise we're okay. And then he made the decision that he would go on. And he's gone on with tremendous force. Costume is torn. I love that. Costume is worn out. Yes, that's what happens when you die and nothing more. So, second question. What is the thought about Bhaktivakra Gita, Vashista Yoga, and the Bhagavad Gita telling about self-realization? What did you mean when you said that uh, that was the first book on the subject of self-realization? Oh, I certainly didn't mean it was the first book ever written. <laughs> oh, please excuse me if that's what you thought I said. No, this was, this was Swami Kriyananda's compilation of the personal notes he'd taken of Master. And he put a lot of it into the path, and then this was the second book he, he put out. What I was saying, actually, was in 1990, when this book was first published, that's 24 years ago, you did not have nearly as much material of Yogananda's teaching as you do now. Much of the reason you have so much is because of the lawsuits <laughs> and because so much was freed up. Um, it was assumed by SRF and everyone else that they actually had legal rights to just about everything Master did. By the end of 12 years of litigation, it was proved that they actually didn't. They had legal rights to their edited versions of his writing, but not actually to his original writing. And that's why so much is now can be found everywhere. But when this book came out, um, it, was a, uh, it was a feast uh, from, for devotees and those who'd read autobiography and wanted to know more about Master. But no, in fact, a, a good part of the litigation was to prove that self-realization was nothing that Master invented. He neither invented the term, the concept, or the teachings. He was just one exponent of, of a tradition that is, goes back beyond time, beyond what we can measure. And that Master himself, being conscious of that fact, called his technique Kriya, which is also a generic term that many people used. And he called his teaching self-realization, which is a generic term that many people use. Far from wanting to say, I've made something nobody else has made. He wanted to say just the opposite. This is an ancient tradition, and I'm just one more wave on this great ocean of understanding. When Swami Kriyananda asked him directly, is what you brought a new religion? Yogananda answered perfectly by saying, it's a new expression, because it is re-articulated um, for the times that we live in. He, he, he modernized it. He simplified it. He made it very practical. He, he answered the needs of the time. Kali Yuga needed more form, more institution, more lines of authority, more hierarchy. Dwapara Yuga um, just needs the experience, the energy, the consciousness. That's why Master brought it all the way down to breath. In the original version of Autobiography of a Yogi, when he's in the chapter about Kriya Yoga, in which he describes without teaching, he describes the effect of Kriya Yoga practice and says, in a book intended for the general public, I can't teach the technique itself. You'll have to learn that from a Kriya Yogi. That's all he said. You have to learn it from a Kriya Yogi. You have to learn, learn it from someone who knows it. Subsequent editions of Autobiography of a Yogi, edited by SRF, say, from an authorized representative of Self-realization fellowship, or you go to Satsanga Society of India. And those words are put in there as if Master himself said them, which is what the controversy was about, because their point of view is that institution and hierarchy and authority is, is essential, and they have projected on Master 
that attitude, whereas Master himself wrote, you have to learn Kriya from a Kriya yogi, from someone who knows it. I go with the first edition. People may go with the subsequent if they choose. It's really a matter of your own heart and inspiration. But Master was very definitely not the first or the last. He was one in a never-ending series of divine um, gifts that God sends um, in response to the call of aspiring love that devotees offer. God responds. A prayer of love went up from earth and you responded. As we say, a ray of your light flashed out from the heart of infinity, burst downward through night skies of consciousness, and was born on earth for the redemption of mankind in human form. Many times has that light descended, drawn to earth by the call of aspiring love. And that's the spirit of Master and of Ananda, of Swamiji, and of self-realization. God bless you.